Hello again, friends. Welcome or welcome back. This is the Overview Effect with James Perrin. This is my podcast where I like to get big picture. As you know, I like to step back and have the big philosophical purpose-driven conversations about our world, about nature, humanity, about all things that are important to us. And do you know what? If there is one person or one conversation that perfectly epitomizes and sums up that overview effect idea, it is today's guest. I'm so excited to share this episode, episode 10 with you. But before I do, I need to say a couple of quick things. Firstly, as always, I want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on Bundjalung country. I want to pay my deep respects and gratitude to members of the Bundjalung community and First Nations people all around Australia and the world. Secondly, I need to rant about something. So buckle in. (laughs) As I record this, it's Black Friday weekend which Black Friday, we all know this day of mega sales where people just go crazy buying shit. And it's, you know, then at one year, all of a sudden it turned into Cyber Monday where it carries over and Monday you buy a whole bunch of stuff online and now it's this crazy consumerist cyber weekend and it's just bombarding us with all of these messages to buy, buy, buy. It's, it seems crazy. It seems crazy, especially this year after a pandemic that has seen restrictions placed on shopping. We've seen people shamed for panic buying throughout the year. You know, all these jokes about like stocking up on toilet paper and naming and shaming people. And now we're literally being told to panic buy because there are deals, 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 and they're only available for the next 48 hours. It's it's crazy. The power of commercialization of commoditization, of consumerism is overwhelming this year more than any other year. I mean, this year we saw the devastating impacts on small businesses, the issues, the restrictions placed on them, the financial complexities. We saw so many of them shut down. We've seen the consolidation of wealth and power to the big and multinational Even in a time, even in a year where we all took pause and said we were going to support the local and rally our communities together, we've seen the consolidation to the big and the powerful. I mean, take Amazon, for example. Jeff Bezos is now worth almost $200 billion. It's like $180 billion or something like that. And the thing about billionaires is that it's such a large sum of money we can't actually comprehend it. We can't get our heads around it. I'll give you an example. Imagine you won the lottery tomorrow and imagine you won $50 million. You and your family and your children's children and every, every one of your loved ones, you could set all of them up for life. You could invest, you could stop working, you could have your investments fulfilling your life, you could actually invest that ethically, you could make a whole bunch of impact and positive change, $50 million would be incredible. Now a billionaire has has that $50 million, and then they have another $950 million on top of that. 
It's an enormous, obscene amount of money. And then we've got people who are well over 100 pushing $200 billion. I mean, the Walton family that started Walmart, for example, one of the biggest Black Friday kind of proponents. They're the world's richest family, well over $200 billion. And it's, it's, it's devastating and it's just saddening, quite frankly, that there's that much money in the small hands of a number of people when there are hundreds of millions of people that are struggling to eat or even go to the toilet in a um, sanitary location day to day. I mean, I'd like to offer us an alternative to the Black Friday bonanza, for example, instead of hopping online and trying to grab a sale. Imagine if this Christmas we shopped locally. Imagine if that $100 that you wanted to spend on getting a gift for a loved one instead of getting a convenient and cheap and quick and easy online option, imagine if you took a bit of time and a bit of effort and you went down to your local store and you bought a beautiful gift for your loved one and you had that extra extra personal touch of actually going and getting it and picking it out of a store. But not only that, imagine if then that shopkeep took your $100 and then went down to their local grocer their local independent grocer, and they bought a beautiful lunch or dinner for their family to share with their loved ones on Christmas Day and how lovely that would be. And then imagine if that local grocer then takes that $100 and goes to their local brewery or winery and buys drinks to share and connect with their loved ones on Christmas. And then imagine if that local business was actually an ethical one that signed up to a community-owned renewable electricity retailer for example, like my previous guest in Nova Energy. And those, that funds then went to supporting community-led renewables transition. Can you see how the power of your original $100 could make an enormous positive impact rather than just throwing it away to some massive multinational internet giant? This is the reality that we want to live in and this is the power that we have and that businesses have to create positive change and this is what I'm so passionate about. Okay, enter my guest today. Rant over for James. Enter my guest today because this is exactly what she has been working, spending her lifetime on in the last 45 years advocating for. My guest today is an internationally renowned thinker, author, filmmaker, philosopher. She, she tells her story beautifully about how she entered Ladakh in Tibet when it was first opened up to outsiders. She entered as a translator and she witnessed firsthand the transition that took place in that community from being a thriving, self-sustainable cultural community to the encroachment of our Western mindset and commercialization and materialism. And she saw year on year how that just eroded that community and caused devastating impacts. She's written multiple books, most notably Ancient Futures, which details her experience through Tibet and all the problems she encountered. She then produced and directed the documentary, an award-winning documentary called The Economics of Happiness, which further tells the stories of the problems with globalization. This year, she hosted World Localization Day, which was an online summit and featured some incredible people, including Noam Chomsky, Jane Goodall, Russell Brand, Charles Eisenstein, and so many more. I highly recommend you hop on and check out the videos from that. It was endorsed by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, to give you an idea of the level that she's on. 
in this in this conversation we talk about her experiences living in and out of Tibet and seeing it change every time she went back. We talk about the importance of localization and big picture activism, uh, the difference between localization and nationalism, which is a really important distinction, especially this year. We've seen people's nationalistic tendencies come out. Uh, we talk about this year and how we've seen this divergent path where people, we've seen pockets of people slowing down and supporting local, but we've also seen like I said, this consolidation of wealth and power and reliance on screens and internet, possibly equally. So it's a really great, interesting, big picture, highly motivating conversation. She is the epitome of a beautiful, wise elder, and I really love sitting down with her. Please enjoy this conversation with author, filmmaker, philosopher, Helena Norberg-Hodge. Then more so, I then want to move into kind of what's the big global problems that we face, and what are some of the big global opportunities. Yeah, is that what you? Cool. Awesome. All right. Um, so, Helena, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me in your beautiful home in the in the tucked away in Byron. It feels like we're tucked away in a little retreat up here it's beautiful yeah it is a little eco community it's, <laughs> it's nice so i this the name of the show is called the overview effect and it's inspired by this experience that astronauts have when they first leave earth they launch up into space and they look back on earth and they describe it as having this profound paradigm shift they see our earth as a, a single system and it changes the way that they view the world and when they come back to Earth, how they interact with the world. And so I like to start there, and, and I want to ask you, and knowing your story, maybe I know where you're going to go with this, but um, have you had any moments in your life, experiences or periods of time, where you've had that kind of big picture perspective and it's really shaped the way that you interact with our world? Yeah, very definitely. <laughs> and it was when I ended up immersed in this ancient Tibetan culture, called Ladakh, it's the westernmost part of Tibet and a region that belongs politically to India. It's about the size of Austria, so it's quite a large area. And I arrived there in the mid-70s when the region had just been thrown open to outsiders. It had been closed off in the whole modern era. And before that, during the colonial period, it was essentially left to its own devices because it was too small either a, uh, a market or, or for labor. It wasn't of interest. Very extreme climate, so snowed in for about eight months of the year. And I found a sort of Shangri-La, and my sort of overview effect became essentially seeing our Western system in, its, in a more holistic way, in a more systemic way than I think most Westerners do or can. It's mm. very hard when you're in it. And I was outside of that system year after year. I would live there for half of every year. And then the other half, I would be impassioned, rushing around from Munich, Paris, London, New York, San Francisco to try 
to warn of the way that this man-made economic system, this man-made Western world, was escalating into something that was truly destroying not just us, but the, the biosphere itself. Mm. So you, yeah. So you had this incredible experience that most of us haven't had, which is to to become be part of a community that was relatively or completely untouched, completely self-reliant and cut off from, I guess, our globalized world. And then you saw the the effects of economic globalization, uh, capitalism, consumerism creep in or enter in quite suddenly. In, in And so you had that experience in a rather acute way, I guess. Yeah, it was almost like a, a scientific experiment because you had this community on the other side of high Himalayan mountains and one road coming up from India over the high peaks and and it was carrying with it these elements of our Western economy, of this globalized Western economy. And so sort of day by day, year after year, I sort of saw these variables coming into a system that had been based on fundamental relationships, deep ongoing relationships with their own climate, their own resources for a few thousand years. And so people were growing their own food, building their own houses, weaving their own cloth out of the hairs of their own animals, dyeing them, you know, with plants that existed up there. And there had been trade, but it had been slow and it had been essentially for luxuries. Wow. And so I guess for, for most of us in the in the Western world or even in the, the entire world, really, we haven't had that that acute scientific experiment that you've had where we're in it and we don't necessarily see it because it's a chronic system and we live in the day to day. So I guess, can you paint the picture a little bit for us then? Because it's since then it's been your life's work, really. What are... What are the the problems? How bad are is economic globalization? What are the what are the terrible impacts? How far reaching are they? And what are the things that we don't see being in the day to day? I think the main thing we don't see is how a combination of changes to knowledge from schooling to um, you know universities to science and the the information technologies through the media, how these have changed and how they are changing as they are linked to an economic reality of a greater and greater concentration of power and wealth in the hands of global players, global multinational corporations and banks that are able to move in and out of every economy freely, because they've lobbied governments to sign on to so-called free trade treaties, and that's about giving them the freedom to do as they like without any hindrance. Now, this process of knowledge being shaped linked to the concentration of wealth in larger and larger and larger institutions, I see that as this frightening and very dangerous fundamental structural shift we also don't realize that it's accompanied by um, 
extreme pressure on the individual, both time pressure and psychological pressure. So we're sort of caught in this machine where we're sort of running faster and faster. We can see that overall this economic system, well, we're not necessarily pointing to the economic system, unfortunately. We're ending up talking about humanity destroying the world, you know, poisoning our food and the seas. And, but we don't necessarily see that it's the economic system. However, even those people who do focus on the economic system, they're not looking clearly enough from my point of view. They're not looking globally enough. So they end up mainly focusing on national governments and the changes that national governments should make. They don't go deep and broad enough to look at the real roots of our problems and the structural problems. I don't know if that makes sense, but mm. yeah. Yeah, well... Uh I was just going to ask you, so that then you talk about, I've, I've heard you talk about this term big picture activism. So is that, can you describe what is that? And is that the way, is that what you're talking about? A different way of kind of seeing the world? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that it is very simply stated. It's about understanding that in order to see how our multiple crises connect, we need to sort of zoom out, almost like those astronauts, um, but unfortunately not like them because they they didn't actually wake up to the problems with how science has changed, for instance. Mm. So, But we need to zoom out to really understand that this dominant global market with its tentacles literally into every part of the world is the main reason for epidemics of depression, for a rapid rise in fundamentalism and prejudice, for a loss of democracy, for an ever-widening gap between rich and poor that is becoming obscene in every country, including my native country of Sweden. And it's responsible not just for climate change, but for ecocide, for the extinction of species, you know, as we speak. And that extinction of species is linked to an extinction of cultures, the extinction of languages. So that sounds pretty dramatic and pretty horrible, and it is. I see the continuation into further globalization, meaning giving more power to multinational banks and corporations as something that should be stopped, could be stopped, if people understood it better. So big picture activism is about trying to spell that out to really make it clear to people that once we see it that way, we have an opportunity to not get caught up in a blame game. Mm -hmm. It is not actually about believing that, well, yeah, these multinationals are nasty and therefore the CEOs, you know, the Bill Gates and all the people that run these things must be pure evil. It's not actually about individuals. It's about a scale and a speed that makes it impossible for those leaders to pay enough attention to the infinite complexity and diversity of life, the infinite complexity and diversity also of human life, to be able to deal in a truly sustainable way. The impact on the world cannot be but destructive. 
And they are blind to that, and they're conveniently blind to that. They're earning lots of money, as we see now with Amazon and so on. You know, it's a very comfortable position to be in, in the sense that when you're earning, you know, billions, it's it seems like quite a nice position to be in. Well, there's no incentive to change. There's no incentive to for people in those businesses or industries or that world to change because... Yeah, I mean... <laughs> And the incentive is not there in a sense because, as I see it, the movements at the grassroots, where they generally emanate from, the movements for social justice, for you know fighting climate change, for trying to protect the forest here, or or prevent you know child abuse, working with epidemics of depression, all these truly well-intentioned movements and, and individuals involved with them are generally not looking at that bigger picture. So they don't deliver um, a, a sort of a, a big picture that would force those people to f at least feel more uncomfortable. Instead, what's happening is that they sit at the top of the pyramid telling themselves that they are doing things that are necessary for humankind, and I, I've met many of them, I've spoken to them, you know, and and they they believe that they're being pressured by the voters and by the consumers and citizens to keep growing the economy, to deliver jobs for them, they're growing their health industries to develop vaccines or to do all these good things for humanity, and there isn't that clear big picture from a, from the grassroots up that is needed to change this direction. In the meanwhile, though, at the grassroots, and when I say grassroots, I mean in virtually every institution, even within Monsanto or HSBC or the World Bank, you will encounter individuals who are going against the trend, who are actually seeing this is not moving in the right direction, I'm seeking an alternative perspective, I'm trying to ameliorate or slow down this path. So you'll find in virtually every corner, there is a counter trend. And at the grassroots, um, and, and again, as I said, the grassroots isn't just uh, people, you know, working really close to the ground per se, it's people working in what's being kept a sort of shadow to develop alternative ways of doing things. And I see these trends as micro-trends. I call them sometimes ancient futures trends because in many unconscious ways, we are developing ways and ways of seeing the world that are taking us back to nature, that are taking us back to community, that are actually about rebuilding a fabric of life that is not only more sustainable, but that is healthy that actually is rewarding is is joyous it's mm. it's the economics of happiness so there are for me you know why i keep going is that i see around the world an amazing proliferation of these initiatives and they could be even you know movements towards organic agriculture towards alternative medicine towards a different type of midwifery towards a um, multitude of different ways in, in agriculture to, to be truly more sustainable. Um, and as a movement, I also see what I'm calling a localization movement, which actually becomes 
structurally meaningful because it withdraws its support from the dominant global market by creating links between producers and consumers. Mm. So there is this localization movement emerging and part of big picture activism is not only to spell out the destructive impact of the dominant system, but to show that there is another systemic way forward, which is not one way, it's literally billions of different ways because it's it's adapting to diversity because it's place-based. So this structural um solution multiplier of localization is incredibly important and it's incredibly important in sharing the big picture that we show people that there is another direction there mm. is another systemic path but you have to i, I understand what i'm hearing is that you have to step back and really see that big picture and really see and understand and, and feel those negative impacts first before you jump to those solutions. And, and, and that's a big part that we're missing as societies, really going, what are the big structural problems with the world? And, and I'm interested in your, you talked about um, there are some counter movements within organizations and within at the grassroots level and, and um, in different pockets around the world that are starting to move towards a more holistic way of viewing the world. And I'm curious, do you think the this year the current covid situation the last six to nine months which has put a massive pause and lockdowns and changes economically all over the world do you think that has accelerated a movement towards people thinking more about localization and you know we've seen and heard things about people wanting to support local um people buying seedlings, seedlings have sold out, people wanting to set up their own gardens. We've seen pockets of that. But at the same time, we've also seen a massive consolidation of wealth by the big multinationals during this year. Um, massive um, consolidation of power of governments as well. So I'm, I'm curious your reflections on this year and what the COVID situation has done. Yeah, I I basically see, you know, this very clear divergence between continuing towards this globalizing path or choosing to support and going in the localizing direction. And the localizing then again is systemically about it's actually about respecting and working with diversity. It's about slowing down. It's about a more collaborative path. And, you know, the dominant one is exactly the opposite direction. And a key element in those two parts is also is the role of technology and our dependence on the screens, essentially our dependence on the internet and, uh, and our computers and mobile phones. And this COVID pandemic now has, I think, very clearly strengthened both directions. Mm-hmm possibly equally so in a sense we could be more or less where we started but i guess i'm i'm quite worried about the strengthening of the dominant techno-economic path uh, because the we're not just talking about creating technological systems that you and i could choose to participate in or not and i think one of the biggest central you know, centrally most important themes now in big picture activism is to understand better how and why 
increasing our dependence on the internet, increasing our dependence on AI is extremely dangerous and counterproductive in every sense of the word. It's being touted as a way of becoming more sensitive, more intelligent. I mean, robots are literally being romanticized now. And regularly you will hear that they are going to be able to be more intelligent. They're going to have, you know, this fabulous agriculture where you have, you know, the robot will know exactly where to spray and not mm. to spray, very targeted it's been promoted also in terms of education, so people who are otherwise not at all interested in robots come away from, you know, enlightened, supposedly professors talking about how the wonderful thing about the AI revolution and long-distance learning is that everything will be able to be targeted specifically to your child, so it won't be this sort of mass factory production of education. Now, when you look at the realities of what's happening already through AI, you would see that it's exactly the opposite, that it is taking us to an even greater level of incapacity to respect diversity, incapacity to whether to respect the individual or, or biological species. It's a, it's a very, very destructive path, and... And COVID has speeded up that trajectory. Mm. On the other hand, um, yeah, like you were saying, the appetite for becoming more self-reliant and then enjoying it and the appetite for having a little bit more time, you know, to bake bread and to be with family. For many people, COVID has actually brought families together. Yeah. Not always. There are some people who've really suffered but there's been a considerable shift, I would say perhaps particularly in the middle classes in the West. Yep. And the middle classes are actually incredibly important because they are the people we have to rely on to take some time to think and act. Um, we should not be expecting, we keep hearing, oh, the young people, we can leave it to them, no. They are under so much pressure, young people today. And then we hear, oh, it should be marginal people. It should be the, you know, uh, people who are people of color, people of, um, you know, lower income. They should be the leaders. You know, it's, it's a very clever inversion of the truth, this pressure that the middle classes can't do something um, valuable and therefore we have to rely on, you know, mm. on the marginalized. Yeah. Uh, and I, I want us to turn that story exactly on its head to say it, it, it is precisely the middle class people who need and must do something and who, who now have had a bit of an opportunity to slow down, to think, to question, um, and they they got that taste of of becoming a bit more self reliant, and the localizing path is one where we would all be able to have more multiple skills and be able to work a bit more with our hands, to be able to be more than just a left brain, you know, sitting on a chair in front of a screen all day. So I think there's been a, a cultural you know, shift now that is quite significant that can be helpful. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've certainly felt that. I mean, 
and we haven't had in this part of the world we haven't had the strictest of lockdowns and um so it's i'm very conscious that there are many 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 people all over the world that have suffered more but throughout the the sh- relatively short lockdown period that we had i actually i actually came out of it i kind of enjoyed it weirdly a little yeah, bit yeah. um i had this sense of um I want, to, I want to almost say Stockholm syndrome, which is maybe apt given that you are from Sweden, <laughs> but um, um, because it it offered me that time, as you say, to slow down, to spend more time with family, to do more things around the house, to do more things with neighbours, um, and 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 I think you're right. I think there is a a, a rise in consciousness of people wanting to go down that path but at the same time we're seeing externally swings in the opposite direction in the structural sense but perhaps that consciousness that collective consciousness rising needs to come first well i mean yes without it we we are doomed so i think it needs to come first but it also needs to be actively promoted and spread and all the time linked to you know the du- uh, direction that will lead to action mm. and but that action isn't just individual action it's about what we can do collectively and there are some very interesting stories from america uh, my friend joanna macy was actually in connection with this world localization day we put on she was saying how she had really uh, understood you know what i'd been trying to say about localization seeing what happened after COVID because suddenly people were reaching out to help each other mm-hmm. and they were deriving also uh, so much satisfaction from having more of an agency, from being dependent on themselves and others in whom they were in, with whom they were in direct contact. And they were developing you know, this plethora of very creative ways of ultimately coming together to support each other mm. and looking after, you know, the poorer people or people who were incapacitated in some way. But above all, what she kept highlighting was how different it was operating in that way from being employed by a government agency to supposedly look after the the poor or yes. the aged and that this... Um, the spontaneity, the flexibility led to a creativity that was so empowering and that then furthered more collaboration, more action. And that is, you know, that's at a, another level, you know, one of the lessons from Ladakh that I, that I saw very clearly, how, how different it is when you're allowed to grow up um, as if we're more free. I mean, I, I would I could talk about us being free to be human, free to be who we really are by nature, which is be, we are beings who enjoy positive, helpful relationships with one another. Mm. It's so obvious, but you know, it, we don't realize the extent to which we're being denied that truth. We're being told that no, we're by nature actually aggressive and com- competitive, much more natural. And of course, every single baby that's born will tell you very clearly, if it could speak, that I'm not going to survive. If I don't have a loving, nurturing environment, I won't be with you. So it's a, it's the foundation of life is that you are cared for, loved, looked after. Mm-hmm. And if that's done well, you know, 
this being grows into a loving, caring person. Uh, and of course, I suppose everyone, if pushed in a corner and having to struggle for their survival, they'll do that. But that's not what we enjoy doing. That's not who we, you know, who we mm. really are. Isn't it interesting how whenever there's a crisis, a pandemic, or a, we've had up here floods, bushfires, yeah. we always see communities rally together. We always yeah. see people drop their day-to-day yeah. lens yes. of being in that system yeah. to want to go and help their neighbors yeah. that they haven't spoken to for the last five years that they've yeah. been living in that house. But that's our natural tendency. And for whatever reason, it only seems to come out in a crisis. Isn't that interesting? And then when that well, crisis I, ends... Yeah, but they see that I think we, we think because we're only seeing it through the lens of the dominant media. And I include in that the internet media. It's very mm. hard to get out those examples that show something else. Because I'm seeing all kinds of initiatives that are born of, uh, the initiative might not always have come out of some purely altruistic um, drive, but but what I'm seeing is all kinds of changes that that actually testify to an intelligence, a, a common sense of creativity and perseverance of people coming together to do things that go in the opposite direction. You know, whether it's people who take the initiative, and I had many friends, you know, throughout Europe and America who gave rise to the whole organic movement, you know, and who just realized how toxic the chemicals were. And, and it was always struggling against the dominant trends because, and it's even worse today, we're operating in a system where everything we need to do to affirm the positive side of humanity, to support collaborative relationships, to allow us to actually enjoy a healthier, happier life. All of those things are being enclosed and made more expensive. So this is one of the key things that we need to understand is that as we swim in this sea where we're not getting a clear picture or accurate information one of the biggest lies and the most evil lie is the price in the marketplace, which we are told is some kind of reflection of natural selection or you know scarcity or natural efficiencies of scale. No, our governments have ended up manipulating the pricing so that what would naturally be far cheaper and far healthier has become artificially expensive. And that, you know, the the most obvious thing there is a, a carrot that has been grown in a farm a mile away using no chemicals mm-hmm. is far more expensive than one that's been grown sometimes 10,000 miles away using lots of chemicals. Now, all those chemicals are expensive to create and they're very expensive because they're very difficult to get rid of there. I mean, the transport, the packaging, the refrigeration. You know, so we have been locked in a system that has increasingly been subsidizing the toxic and the unhealthy. And it's it's been, you know, since the advent of so-called cheap oil, you know, we we need, you know, it's not unrealistic or or childish as some people might insist to speak of the wars in the Middle East or even actually to speak of the world wars in connection with this battle for oil and for for resources so the price we paid you know 
to develop this so-called cheaper way of doing things has been, you know, the lives of millions of people and it's been the poisoning and the destruction of the planet. It is that simple. But, um, you know, we need people who are willing to be courageous enough to say these things. So do you think, on so taking the example of the carrot, first of all, I think it's crazy that organic carrots are packaged up and then labeled organic like they're different and everything else is a normal carrot. Yeah. It should be the other way. Exactly. That should be normal and you should, should call other chemical. things spray. Ke- chemical. No one would buy it then. Yeah. Um, but so let's say what can someone who is in the day-to-day, maybe they are kind of struggling paycheck to paycheck or you know they, they don't know how what they can do and maybe they can't afford to buy all prepackaged organic carrots what can they do what are some steps that people can take is this going to be a a groundswell of consumer driven change or do you think that it's more around influencing people in the top tiers of government and business to change from the top down no i well i i think it's in a way neither of those things it's for me the big hope is that there will be enough awareness among those who you know, who understand how absolutely necessary it is, particularly to change the food system, which, by the way, is the most central issue and the most central area for us to focus on to transform the whole world. But for those who recognize the need for that shift, if they can make the link to understanding the economic system and make the arguments based on that rather than what unfortunately has happened is that they have ended up pleading with people to be willing to spend more money if they care about their health and the health of the environment. And I'm, you know, forever, we've been trying to say with some of our books and so on, let's talk about how you want your taxes spent. Do you want your government to keep subsidizing that chemical carrot and the transport and the packaging, which is leading to climate change, etc., etc., Or... Do you want to to say, no, I want my tax money to be used to support exactly the opposite? Mm. So that shift, I still am hoping will happen. There is, you know, it's it's happening here and there. And um, then we would be talking about, as when I started working, and I started with this 45 years ago, Virtually every environmentalist was talking about policy change. What happened by around the mid-80s, which is when big corporations were becoming more powerful, their influence on the environmental movement was to shift the discussion to away from policy change to you, the consumer, you're going to lead the way. If you care about the world, you're going to be buying, you're going to be buying the the right product, and that's how you're going to save the world. Yeah, they now, said we're what, just supplying a demand. That was the, the kind of big business angle, wasn't it? We're just supplying the demand. As long as yeah, the demand's there, that's... Yeah, yeah. yeah, And they were also insisting when governments tried to bring in any sort of regulations that would have changed things, they were basically <laughs> uh, pressuring them not to do so. Mm. And, and what's happened in this process is that governments have become more and more indebted to is to private banks and corporations. So we're in a difficult situation, but it's only difficult because of our ignorance. It's the ignorance that's the obstacle between 
very rapidly shifting in a healthy direction. And that doesn't mean, you know, that we don't face serious problems with climate and so on. But it's it's remarkable just how quickly things can heal mm. when given the right conditions. And I've seen that again and again in ecosystems. I've seen it with traumatized, angry prisoners who just given a little bit of love and care to connect to each other, to the land, to grow food in a healthy way, to be able to connect in a collaborative sort of circle, community way. It, it's remarkable how both people and nature can heal very, very rapidly. So on the, on the topic then of localization, can you paint the picture a little bit more of the distinction between localization and I think what we're seeing a lot of at the moment, which is nationalism and how we're seeing a lot of government leaders, a lot of even the business world um, talk in really nationalistic ways, which is like, we're just going to look after our backyard and global issues are for another time. So how does localization consider kind of global issues and how does it differ from that nationalistic mindset? Yeah, I mean, this is such a good question and, and hugely important and it's it's complex. I mean, the, in everything I'm talking about, there are these layers of complexity and this is one of the, the clearest ones. So localization is about rebuilding the fabric of direct connection, direct interpersonal connection and a direct relationship with with the land with the water with the soil with the the trees and and animals around you it's reestablishing experiential knowledge as a way of informing yourself about what is the right way and the wrong way of doing things you're getting feedback loops from a systemic interdependence where you're able to actually have some sense of your impact on others. Mm. So for instance, when you're in a small town like here in Byron, when you know the, the person who's um, making the clothes that you're wearing and you know uh, them personally and you have an idea of where the cloth is coming from and where uh, the farmer who you buy from in the farmer's market whose name you know, you might even be able to go to the farm, you have a, a there are feedback loops in both directions that stimulate and support a type of collaborative and certainly much more honest relationship mediated information when you go to the supermarket to buy that carrot and you're told this is organic but you have no idea where it was grown you don't know how much the label organic has been played with which we now know more and more about that it is mm. um, you don't know either whether the migrant labor that has picked it if it happened in your own country when it's sold as local or nationally you know australian product um, you don't know whether it was migrant labor is treated very badly and if it comes from the other side of the world which it very often does mm. even less do you know about the treatment of the land and the people there so 
This is about uh, creating ways of doing things that are naturally more ethical, naturally create more responsibility and more accountability. National structures were actually formed out of this global market rising up and national boundaries were drawn and and um, you can see it most clearly in the so-called third world where the colonizers often came in and established these nation states and drew boundaries around both bioregions and human um, populations that were completely artificial and that often you know, ended up dividing people because this modern market from its outset has been born of, of a, a colonial, patriarchal, misogynist, racist, anti-nature mentality. This is where the global economy comes from. It was white men in Europe who through a historical development where Christianity played a big role in robbing people of a deeper self-respect and a sense of power and agency, you know, the burning of women at the stake who had deep knowledge about nature, along with the destruction of indigenous people. All of this was the build-up to this modern economic system which you know, it started also in, in slavery, not just in killing off women who had knowledge about nature and, and genocide. This market from the very beginning was a global system where you had a huge advantage when you had slaves on one side of the world and you had people, on, say, in England who had been enclosed, they'd been pushed off the land to become cheap labor in London. And these great global traders amassed huge amounts of wealth. That's the trajectory that's still continuing, and that's where we have to question that fundamental structural path. Now, the nation-state, to a great extent, was born out of that, and it was helped by technology. When you started getting the tools for you know, the big megaphone, the radio already started playing a role in bringing people together across so-called, uh, you know, into a, into a national identity. This was forged by top-down leaders shouting loudly over radio and later on, of course, with television and film. This is who you are. We are united. And in virtually every instance, it was linked to war and conquering of others. It was shaped in um, in contrast to this other nation that you were fighting or getting ready to fight. So it's it's been, I also just want to add this, you may not keep this in, but one of the centralizing part of this also was from the very beginning, urbanization and our urbanization we need to recognize is a central structural effect of this system and it's also a driver of it and so the 
actually two working together, schooling and education and urbanization. They're both effects and drivers because they're pushing us all in the same direction. And with the urbanization, we're talking about pulling people away from a bit of land, a bit of a forest, a bit of of the ocean where they had a, a food supply, where they had a way of building houses for themselves, they had a way of making clothes for themselves. Suddenly they're being pushed into these cities and fighting to survive depending on bits of paper being coming, as it were, from the sky, from these centralized institutions. And now no no sense of whether a piece of bread tomorrow is going to cost twice as much or not. And so it creates a neurotic fear and need to try to amass as much money as possible. And you're being pitted against the other. Mm. You're no longer in a in a relationship with others where collaboration improves your situation. And by the way, in the more nature-based situation, that's what you had. You didn't have a bunch of altruists who were just altruistically helping each other. You had people who could see clearly that working together was in their interest. Mm. But the urbanization, which concentrates, this is, I'm go, I know I'm digressing. No, 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 it's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, but I just want to say about the nation state then that the... Um, the real complexity now is that, yes, this nation state is unhealthy, it's unnatural, it started from the top down through this, this economic concentration and power and, and pulling people together that often had, you know, no reason to be pushed into the same space as it were and suddenly have be called, this is who you are. And... What I always say is that when you destroy the local community identity, and remember with it, this is an identity connected to place, a sense of belonging, a sense of growing up, knowing that, you know, oh, at this time of year, this tree gives flowers, at this time of year, these herbs grow that we can pick, and this is what's happening that web of relationships and interdependence and of which you feel a part, you identify with, when you cut that off and, you know, and you're doing it not just intellectually, but you're pulling people away from that into a different modality of surviving in the world and forging this new artificial identity, you are creating people who are vulnerable to the machination of machinations of despot. You're creating people who are fearful and vulnerable and easily manipulated. So mm. there is an incredible strength and healing that comes from that more decentralized, localized way of being. And, and that includes, you know, being productive and having multiple skills and feeling a part of, which leads to this sense of a more expansive sense of self. Now, so the formation of the nation-state, the reasons for it have been very negative. However, the complexity we're in today is that the nation-state is virtually the only meaningful um, structure to work with in order to bring about positive change. So we need to be able to look at this complexity and see that the nation state 
has been and could be a much kinder, gentler um, government than a global de facto government of deregulated banks, uh, the names of which we don't even know, of corporations, and and we're talking about corporations, you know, interlinked into monstrous structures of of really, um, yeah, anyway, so we have now a de facto government of interlinked corporations that is a far worse government than a national government that at least puts a face on the ruler and gives us a chance to vote. Mm. So to abandon the nation state now and to say, let's just all go into our local community and become those healthy, strong people, uh, I think is unwise and I don't think um, it's going to work. I think we're up against a hugely centralized power. So I, I'm hoping that people can, you know, spend a little bit enough time on these issues to think them through, to realize that, yes, absolutely, we can simultaneously start rebuilding much more local structures, encourage much greater self-reliance, build up the local food movement. There's so much we can do at the community level. But let's also be more politically literate by understanding the big picture Mm. and let's start pressuring for policy change. And that, to me, will best happen through movement building first. And there are examples of this in the world where initiatives are being taken. So it's not a question of thinking, oh, you know, am I going to spend a lot of time thinking about whether, which the whole world now is wondering whether Biden is better than Trump because you have a de facto government by America worldwide. (laughs) But, you know, it's sort of, yeah, yeah, so I think we need to look at that and there are many ways in which we can simultaneously reduce the power of central national governments over the regions and over the localities while strengthening the nation state vis-a-vis the global de facto government. And so the, the from in my um, estimation, the most strategic way forward would be to be speaking out about the need for new trade treaties, insisting that governments get together to collaborate because of the pressure from the voters and the citizen who are, who will be arguing just non-compliance or, you know, not, yeah, unless governments get back around the tables where they have been signing away the rights of their lands and peoples and their, their own governments into the hands of this de facto deregulated casino to take back the power to argue that, you know, we'll give you certain years, but the process is going to be that you're going to choose whether you're Swedish or Belgian or Japanese, and you will belong to a country, will adhere to the rules of that country, and that country will very possibly develop different ways of dealing with, you know, the rules of business. But we're also going to have a joint agenda where all businesses will be, you know, reducing not just, you know, CO2 emissions, but we'll be reducing wasteful use of resources of any kind. You know, built-in obsolescence will become illegal. There are going to be certain rules that will apply globally because they're dealing with a global 
very clearly a destructive use of resources. When it comes to the healthy use of resources, it needs to be much more place-specific. So you don't want to mandate from above saying, you are going to plant your wheat this way, or even that you are going to plant wheat. Um, but So it's more about the global mandates, about what you can't do. Mm. And then, so I, again, people, from my point of view, they confuse these, they conflate Mm-hmm. what I call sometimes resistance versus renewal, or, you know, what we need to say no to, what, in terms of what we need to say yes to. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that, um, that with a lot of the, the nationalistic rhetoric that we've been hearing lately, and, and maybe it's just my view of the world and the circles I run in, but I feel like people are waking up to some of these big picture ideas that you're talking yeah. about, but then many people get caught in the trap of going, well, then it's this person's fault or that government's fault or this corporation's fault, whereas what you're talking about is actually, it's it's all structural. It's the way that we, as an entire humanity, operate. So we've got to have that that big picture perspective that then we draw down to place-based initiatives. Yeah. Although when you say that we, as humanity, operate, I get a bit nervous because I... I feel still that um, there is a lot of humanity operating outside of the the sort of rules and norms of this system. And every day it's shrinking because people are being pulled into this urbanizing or suburbanizing structure. But where there is still more independence and where we still do have more cultural diversity and so on, we need to not generalize this into you know humanity, but rather distinguish... And that's, I was going to say earlier on, in terms of the perspective that I have, I'm finding that again and again, the people who have the ability to sort of stand outside and look at this particular, it's a particular culture, but it's being spread and imposed worldwide. And it's essentially a consumer monoculture. People who have an ability to see that tend to be people who lived closer to the land, maybe even within the West, just as sort of typical Westerners, but not as typical Westerners, but maybe even within the West. But usually it's people who had the opportunity to live with non-Western, land-based, community-based cultures. Mm. And it can even have been not so far back. It could have been in rural Italy or Spain or France even, and then living in, as it were, the big city in America. And that contrast is what sheds light on these different ways of being. And it's so much to do with scale. So rural doesn't have to be, you know, having your own farm and living out on the land, but it can be being part of a smaller city that has a, still a direct relationship with the land yes. around it. Yeah. yeah. So. Helena, I, uh, I don't want to, I feel like I could talk to you all day about these issues. I love these big picture conversations, but I'm, I'm mindful of your time. But I wonder if just to, just to leave us with something, can you, for someone who's listening that says, I, I think I understand, I get it, I, I agree with all of these big issues from the, the corporate world and governments and um, a lot of these big issues that you're talking about, but what can I do on an individual level? Yeah, well, I, first of all, we are putting together a community guide which will be available on our website, localfutures.org, that will be spelling out more what community initiatives you can take. 
So we feel this is an important shift in the discussion and debate away from the individual to community initiatives. And we also want people, when they think politically, not just to be looking at their nation state and the political theater, as we see it, that's being delivered to them through the media, but to actually look beyond that. And that means understanding, again, that de facto global government. So we're sort of shifting away from the individual and conventional national politics to community-level initiatives and looking at the global system to know better what to do at the national level. And at the community level, there are so many things that you can do. You know, first of all, I can virtually guarantee that if you start looking through different lenses and become interested in this sort of localization movement and you start looking for local community initiatives, there will be a lot of of in, things happening in the world around you that you weren't aware of that are actually much more meaningful. In the structure of what I'm talking about, you know, even supporting a small local independent business of virtually any kind mm is going to be a more positive contribution to a healthier world. It is, I mentioned before, a fact that the food economy is the most fundamental area to focus on. We're not aware that if tomorrow around the world people could eat food from their region, the entire military-industrial complex wouldn't exist you know, it's only been created by driving people away from that, usually through force. And this doesn't mean everyone becoming a farmer. It just means a, a, a sane and healthy balance between the how food is produced and how it's marketed, how it's delivered. Mm. So shortening the distances there is absolutely your best contribution to dealing with climate change, reducing plastic packaging and... But more importantly, even, it stimulates diversification on the land. And diversity on the land is what's central. It's not about carbon. It's about diversity. Carbon can play a role, but it's being greatly overestimated because of corporate Mm. involvement in framing the climate debate. So diversity, shorter distances... That's where we as communities can start making really systemic headway. Now, the wonderful thing, too, is if you get involved in that, you'll also find that it's incredibly fun that (laughs) people actually enjoy themselves at the farmer's markets. The whole culture you're talking about, the difference between rushing into the supermarket versus enjoying your time at the farmer's market – this is something that's happening around the world. And I'm thrilled to be part of an international organization that, you know, I've even seen it happening in Beijing. You know, I've mm-hmm. seen, been in the Czech Republic helping to get these things started in Korea. I mean, it's just really the local food movement is, you know, the the absolutely most vital and the most fun and the most rewarding and... A joyous movement I know of and it's growing literally day by day amazingly because it's getting very little help from government but it's coming from these community initiatives and joining that I can tell you is something that you will not regret it means of course much healthier food so 
in COVID in Japan, one of the main reasons the movement grew massively was because people became aware very quickly that the best way to strengthen the immune system is mm. by having healthy, fresh food. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's a win-win-win solution multiplier. But there are also many other initiatives that include local financing. People are coming together in small groups, putting a bit of money together to perhaps set up their own community energy scheme mm -hmm. or in some cases they've done so to rally around a farm that was maybe going out of business and by creating a so-called community supported agriculture scheme they were benefiting hugely by getting wonderful fresh healthy food and often enjoying having their children help during the harvest and you know, feeling a sense of belonging and productivity, being productive as well. Other ones have been helping a general store that was going to go out of business, but that was in, invaluable to the neighborhood. And the community came together to help with financing early on, and then it becomes a great service for the community. Now, these things also provide more meaningful jobs, so it's a, an incredibly rich and rewarding area to explore the localization movement you can also and i hope you also would think of joining the big picture activism i was talking about and that would mean being willing to pass on the films the latest websites or articles that actually are beginning to make sense about mm -hmm. a way forward that have a clearer analysis it's a tricky territory to, you know, navigate now with so many conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there is a structural de facto conspiracy in the sense that big business has too much power and that includes the Googles and the Facebooks and that we're being manipulated and we're being mined for data. And this is, this is a conspiracy on a mega scale but it's not driven by individual evil intent. It's driven by blindness. So blindness is what's driving a type of conspiracy of, of um, a very unfortunate speedy direction, you know, into the arms of robots and embracing 5G, even though nobody needs it except for big business mm -hmm. to make more money. Yeah. And so, yeah. I, I feel like um, I, I, would, I would love to sit here all day and talk to you down that rabbit hole and maybe we can do that again sometime. And when you mention even just touching on that topic of conspiracy, I mean, your friend Charles Eisenstein wrote an incredible essay called The Conspiracy Myth Going Down That Path. Um, but I, I think we will have to leave it there. Yeah. But um, thank you so much for your time and for your lifelong career work in yeah advocating tirelessly in this direction um, thank you so much thank you thank you no yeah I'll, I'll, I'll.